about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Acts chapter 27 from verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening, said, um, listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed." Last night, an angel of of the God whose I am and who I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. 
So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed their approaching land. They took soundings and found the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land and they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed an unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for he escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and, after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. 
They honoured us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Well, I wonder if you've ever thought about a situation like this. Imagine you're driving to church um, on a cold night, and as you're driving along, you start to hear the tyre go flap, 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 and you realise that you got a flat tyre. And you think to yourself, God, why is that happening to me? I'm making every effort to get to church tonight. It's wet, it's cold, people won't be there. And I've done all the right things. Couldn't the drug dealer down the road or the money launderer got a flat tyre tonight and not me? Ever thought that? Perhaps you've never been in that situation. Or perhaps it's a situation where you're in uh, your apartment and you're with other friends and uh, people there are, perhaps you've been trying your hardest to be kind and generous to other people who are living with you and, uh, and they're being really difficult and you've done everything within your power to be generous and they just continue to be difficult. And you say, God, why me? Like, I'm doing all I can. Surely I deserve better than this, better than these people I'm living with. Or perhaps you're in the workplace and uh, you're living out a Christian life and you're doing everything you can to, to do things well. You're caring for people in your workplace and people around you are not responding well and you're getting looked over for promotions. And you start to think to yourself, God, I'm, I'm behaving well here. How come I'm not getting the promotions? I don't know whether you've ever had that feeling, that sense that God owes you something and that if you actually behave in the way that he wants you to behave, then your life should work out really well, that you should live a relatively trouble-free life. Well, the interesting thing is people take that thought and that paradigm and that idea and extend it further, and you know where they take it? They take it to this kind of place, the gospel of prosperity. And there are just many, many places around this world where this is actually believed by many people. That if you live right, God will make you wealthy. God will give you a great life. And so guys like this sell thousands and thousands of books and make huge amounts of money saying to people, if you only lived right and followed God, he would make everything better, not even just better, he will make you extremely wealthy. Now, the difficulty with this is it's just simply not true. And it's simply not the picture that the, uh, the Bible paints for us. And that becomes particularly clear in the passage that we're looking at tonight. What we're going to do is consider the context, the conundrum and the courage. But as we come to this passage, what we will notice is that Paul is on a great journey. As we've mentioned, we're coming to the end of Acts and Paul is making a journey to Rome. We know the end of the story. The end of the story is that Paul will be killed. But he's on his way to Rome and he has quite a journey to make. Now, the way that this particular story has been written is a bit like a Hellenistic journey tale of the sea. Uh, many of tales of the sea were written and the sea was meant to mean the troubles of life. And they, people met many challenges along the way. 
And the way people reacted to those challenges was important to understand in Greek mythology. And in many ways, this, this tale is written in that way. You've heard all the, the story as it was read out tonight with the, the many twists and turns and all the things that happened. But in this story, we get to understand several things about the way God works and what God intends for people's lives. Come with me as we look at the context first of this particular story. As we look at the context, it becomes clear that Paul is in great difficulty. Um, as we read through the story, we find out that the winds are against them, that there's a hurricane taking place. They find themselves in violently battered around in the ship and they throw cargo overboard. The sun and the stars disappear for many days on end. It clearly is a huge storm and people are terrified. In fact, the sailors are terrified. That's what you pick up. These hardened men of the sea are terrified that they're going to be losing their lives. Such is the ferocity of the storm. Eventually, the ship strikes a sandbar and the whole ship is broken up into pieces. And then finally, when they land on Malta, they're gathering wood together, or Paul's gathering wood together, and he's bitten by a viper. Now let's just stand back a bit for a moment. Paul is in the midst of tragedy and suffering and violence and hardship, isn't he? I mean, actually, this is pretty consistent with his whole life. This is the way he's lived his whole life. If you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we read these words. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. This is the third time he's been shipwrecked. You wouldn't want to get on a ship with him, would you? Um, I spend night, I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been homeless. I've been in danger of rivers, danger of bandits, danger of fellow Jews, danger of Gentiles, danger of the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false believers. This is no comfortable life. Now, sometimes circumstances just happen. Sometimes things just happen, like you find yourself in a big storm, but sometimes people are deliberate in what they do. And the circumstances that we find ourselves in are as a result of other people's actions. And that's what we also find in this story. Paul has actually warned the sailors, uh, warned the owner of the ship, don't go on this voyage. Now, he's a prisoner on the ship. What notice are they going to take of him? He's not a sailor, but he still speaks up and says, this is the wrong direction, we shouldn't be doing this. And so his suffering on this trip has come about because of the bad decisions of other people. Not only the circumstances he's found himself in, but the way other people have gone and make, made decisions. Now, if you believe that God treats you well because of your behaviour, you would expect to see something different with Paul, wouldn't you? Paul has been serving God so faithfully. He's been extraordinary what he's been doing. He's been planting churches. He's been preaching the word of God. He's been walking beside people. He's been caring for people. He's been leading leaders. He's been kind and generous and faithful. And yet, he's in these circumstances. 
he finds himself in the midst of this suffering. He doesn't find himself with an easy life, a comfortable life, a life that's all worked out. This is a challenging life. And of course the reason for this is that Paul is following Jesus. And as Tim Keller puts it, if anyone deserved a good life on the basis of character and behaviour, Jesus did. But he didn't get it. His life ended in pain and suffering and hardship and death. Now I'm not suggesting here somehow that uh, Christians should somehow go looking for hardship and make it more difficult for themselves or kind of pile it up on themselves. But the reality that we see here is that when you follow Christ, you're not being promised a life that says everything will work out okay. You're not being promised a life of material wealth or everything working out with your relationships or everything working out in terms of who you think you should be. You, you won't necessarily leave the dream that you dreamed for yourself. That's not the promise that Christ, that Jesus makes to us in our lives. Now, if we take that on board and we consider that carefully, that leaves us with some significant challenges. And this passage actually raises these challenges with us. Challenges that are sometimes weak in our faith, actually. Challenges that make us reconsider what God is doing. And so I want to think about the conundrum that this passage raises for us in the midst of suffering and hardship. And the conundrum is this. On one hand, in this story, we see that God is in control. And yet the storm still rages. On the other hand, we see that our choices matter and what we do is important and yet the storm still rages. See there in Acts chapter 27, verse 22 to 26, Paul is assured on this ship that God is in control. An angel comes and he says, don't be afraid. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. Have faith in God. It'll happen just as he told me. Nonetheless, you're going to run aground along the way anyway. And so what, what do you think? Well, God is sovereign. God is in control. He's organised things that in the midst of this storm, which, in which they should have all lost their lives, God is somehow going to protect them. They could have gone snorkelling and God would have protected them. Actually, that's not true, is it? We'll see why in a minute. But I want you to notice, this raises a very significant question for us. In the midst of that storm, in the midst of that crisis, God has cho chosen to act sovereignly to save these people. But the storm is still raging. He could have quieted the storm as well, you know. So it raises a, a challenge for us. Just a minute ago I mentioned the fact that they could have gone snorkeling. Well, actually not quite. Because as we see the story unfold, we see that our choices matter. And so, quite understandably, the sailors 
try to escape from the boat by lowering down the lifeboat into the sea. Then the army steps in, and so we've always had troubles between the army and the navy from this point on, but the army steps in and prevents the sailors from escaping. And Paul says to them, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. You have a responsibility to save, stay on the ship because God said he would save those people who are on the ship. And so you are responsible to stay on this ship. You are to be obedient by staying on this ship. Now, can you see the conundrum? God is acting sovereignly to save his people and yet they've got responsibility for their behaviour and for what goes on and they, they might not be saved. They cannot be saved if they get off the ship. It raises some very significant questions for us and questions about how God's sovereignty works in the midst of suffering and what our responsibility is in the midst of suffering. And the reality is I can't answer all those questions tonight. Those are big questions, huge questions to explore and to understand. But I think we can say some things from this passage about what God is doing and about what is going on here. What's true to say in the midst of all this suffering and angst that these people are experiencing is that God is not distant. It's not like God can be wound up like a clock and left off in the distance and he just lets everything just unfold. God is not distant. He's extremely present in the midst of their suffering. And we actually see this in lots of beautiful ways within uh, this story. We see it particularly through the idea of kindness. Our kindness is actually just through the whole story. Julius, the centurion uh, is, is, who's in charge of Paul, shows a kindness to Paul. He's, he's, he's a Roman soldier. He doesn't have to be kind to Paul. He's actually kind to Paul and his friends. We see God in action and intimately involved in his standing beside Paul. We see God in action and in control because he graciously saves the lives of all who sail. Everybody reaches, lands safely in God's kindness and generosity. And the people of Malta show them an unusual kindness. Whatever the case is, and whatever you understand about God's responsibility, God's sovereignty and our responsibility about suffering and how that all fits together, what this passage assures us of is that God is not distant. And the truth is, if your God is big enough to be able to say, to deal with all the suffering of this world, He's going to be big enough to understand all the circumstances that are taking place. He's going to understand how all things work 
because, in fact, he has a plan, doesn't he? God has acted to do something about the suffering in this world, acted to change things, and he's done that through his Son. As we read in Colossians chapter 1, for, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God's going to reconcile all things. There will be a time where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. So God has acted in the death of his son to deal with that suffering. So not only God is intimate, he's acted in his son to deal with the suffering and death. He's not uninterested. It's just that sometimes we have a bit of a a difficulty understanding how God is actually operating. It's hard for us to grasp just how these things fit together, how God could not act sooner and why he doesn't do this and, and why he lets things happen. And I want to suggest to you that is challenging. That is a difficult thing to come to. And sometimes I think it's actually just to do with our imagination and our inability to imagine a God who's so big and so great and so nuanced an understanding of, of this world and the way that it works. And sometimes I think it works a little bit like this. Imagine that you're a five-year-old and your parents come to you and say, by the way, we're going to move country. Now, as a five-year-old, all you're thinking about is your friends, the animals that you're going to leave behind, the place that you know, and you feel the suffering as a result. You're upset because of those things. Now, if your parents came to you and said, well, the reason that we're moving is because we actually have this plan in place and this plan in place, and we think that the world will work out like this, and we think this is a better place for us to go, the five-year-old would just say, I don't understand. I don't, I don't, I don't understand that picture. It's, it's beyond me. And you wouldn't expect the five-year-old to understand, to comprehend all that is involved. And I think sometimes that's what it is a bit like for us. We have a God who is just so big and so vast and so magnificent and so sovereign, we're actually just less than five-year-olds. Now, I realise that's not the complete answer, and I also realise that that doesn't often bring much comfort. To know that God's sovereign, that we are called to act in obedience to him, and yet we find ourselves in the midst of suffering, trying to ask why and what's happening, it often just leaves us with questions and genuine struggles with those things. And so I think one of the questions that we need to ask is, how did Paul handle this? He understood the sovereignty of God. He was the one who told the people on the ship where they were going and what was happening. He also understood human responsibility because he acted and told the soldiers and the sailors what to do. And clearly, he trusted God in all those things. So let's consider Paul for a moment in the midst of all of this. In the midst of this conundrum, what does Paul do? Well, the extraordinary thing about Paul is he has courage. Did you notice the courage this man has? 
This man has courage in the midst of tremendous suffering and the challenging circumstances he finds himself in. He begins by warning them that this is the wrong direction. Imagine that, you're a prisoner, you're being taken off to Rome, you're not a sailor, and yet you know this is the wrong thing to do. So with courage, he speaks up and says, we should not be taking this journey. As the journey goes on and things become so much worse, he starts to encourage the people on the boat. He says, keep up your courage. Later on, as it becomes evident they haven't been eating for days because they're so scared of the storm, he says to them, come, take some food. You need to survive. Not one of you will actually lose a hair from your head. Have courage. And then that final crazy incident where they finally make it to land and they they get there and there's a fire and he gets bitten by a viper and he kind of just shakes it off. This is a man of tremendous courage. I'm sure he had his moments on that boat, but look at the way he acts in the midst of suffering. Look at the way he trusts in God in God's sovereignty and what God is doing in the midst of this suffering. The way he holds on to what God has said will be true and the way he trusts God's words through the angel in the midst of this. What makes him this way? How come he can do this? Well, I think the clue is found in that interaction with the angel. He says, I urge you to keep up courage, Because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all those who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Now, what you see there again is the absolute trust in the sovereignty of God. God knows what he's doing. I'm going to entrust my life to him, and so should you, is what Paul is saying to those gathered on that ship, when the circumstances just seem unbelievable. But what leads him to that? Well, I think the clue is in those words, to the God whom I belong. You see, the thing that gives Paul courage is that he knows that he's known by God. That he belongs to God. That he is God's. And he knows that deep, deep down inside. And the truth is that when you're known, when you know when you belong, it does give you courage. Share an example with you, not to kind of point to myself, but it, it kind of occurred to me as I was thinking about this how this actually works. Um, when I was about eight years old, or maybe seven, um, I was living with my parents and we were living overseas. And uh, because of the schooling involved, I was asked to leave my family and go and live with other families. 
And so for a number of years, I lived with three different families. Two of them were fantastic. The others were kind of a little bit interesting. Um, and so as you can imagine, as a seven-year-old, that's a pretty difficult journey to make. Um, and as I left home, there were tears and, you know, it was a great, great uh, agony, actually, for the whole family, particularly as I was the first one going out. Uh, my brother came and joined me later. And it was just really, really challenging. But the one thing that my mum used to do is that she would give us gifts for two weeks. And what would happen is every day as we adjusted to this new family, we would open up another gift and it would have another little message. And of course, by the end of two weeks, things had kind of, well, we'd kind of got used to where we were. But the things that those gifts said were, you belong and you are known. You are loved. You are cared for. In the midst of your suffering, you are known. And that gave us courage. There was one particular instance I remember, and this is not something I would normally speak up about, but I discovered that this interesting family that I was living with, um, they decided to read our letters home. So we wrote a letter every week to mum and dad, um, and they said, we're checking them for the spelling mistakes. And of course, I had hundreds of spelling mistakes. But I knew that wasn't right. I knew there was something wrong about them reading our letters to our parents, that that wasn't fair. And so I said it to them. I said, you, you shouldn't be reading our letters. Now, I could not have done that unless I knew I belonged and that I was known. I was an eight-year-old. Who am I? And, of course, my parents reacted. They were furious too, and the reading of the letters stopped. Now, for me, that's a kind of insight into what's actually going on here. Paul, because he is known by God and he belongs to God, even in the midst of this terrible suffering and this terrible tragedy that is unfolding behind around him, is able to say, I can be of courage because I am known by God. And what Paul knows is this, that in the ultimate storm, Jesus is being held to the deepest depths. Jesus has been completely banished from his father's sight. Jesus has cried out in agonising dereliction and there's been silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Paul knows that Jesus became unknown in that sense so that he could be known and so that he could belong. And because Paul has let that sink deep into his heart and into his life, the lengths to which Jesus has been prepared to go to make sure that he is known and that he belongs. In the midst of this suffering, whether he can explain it all or not, he can be of courage. He can stand because he is known.
he can trust God because he knows that God will stand beside him. Because God has stood beside him in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so tonight as we think about suffering and think about the challenges we face in our own lives and the, the things that we have to deal with day by day, I want to invite you to be of good courage. To trust God because he knows you. And you are known and you belong if you are his. And he says, I will stand beside you. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.